Those, those were read by Philip. Uh, those represent the Gospel of John, the first 14 verses. And uh, one of the things we're going to be doing the next few weeks together is trying to make sure those are not jumbled words, but they are strung together and make a beautiful representation of, of Jesus Christ and a response from us that would be uh, commensurate, would be uh, in keeping with who he is. So we're pursuing the question this morning about what model of, of engagement with the culture should we have. Uh, we find ourselves in a cultural moment. We have been born into a particular time. And how should we engage our culture? What is the model that we should follow? Uh, I grew up in Redlands, California, Southern California, and we have the University of Redlands. And it's a, it's a beautiful campus, and it kind of has a, a kind of an old East Coast kind of look to it, lots of pillars, kind of Romanesque and Greek architecture. And uh, it's, a, it's, a neat, it's a neat, by way of architecture, a neat, neat place to hang out. Now, all the kids who grew up in Redlands didn't go on to go to the University of Redlands. Uh, for some reason, we wanted to get out of town so, but we did visit there, and there were many events on campus. And uh, I remember one time going into the library, and uh, for whatever reason, um, and seeing the music department, and its and its albums where music students would go to listen to music. And what they had there in the music wing of the library was a glassed-in place somewhat of a soundproof place for students to listen to albums and with just headphones without any of the distractions uh, from people like me who go to the library and talk too loud. So it, would be, it, it was interesting to go in there and watch and to see, and these students, their eyes would be closed, they would be listening, you could see their heads kind of moving around, and they were in sort of rapture and listening to this music with great intensity. And I was imagining this week about kind of presenting what I'm trying to present here in this message is uh, if you're a person who likes practical things and you like a Christianity that has a to-do list and, Pastor, look, that's, that's way up here and I want to be down on the earth where things really happen. I want, a, I want a practical to-do list of what it looks like to be a Christian. This might be a really frustrating message. And I was thinking about the, the student who comes to the, the music professor and says, I want to write music like Mozart, imagine. And uh, so the professor gives the student a stack of Mozart albums and says, go into the glassed-in place and uh, the soundproof booth and listen to Mozart. And then after a few days, the student comes back and says, okay, I'm done. Um, I want to write music like Mozart. I want to get into it. I want to I follow his thought. I want you to show me the sheet music. Let's, let's, start, let's start creating stuff like Mozart did. And the, and the professor turns and says, no, go back into the sound booth and listen again. And listen and listen and listen until the, abs- the beauty of Mozart gets inside you. You're too anxious to produce. You must dwell in and this music longer so it gets inside you. And I think that's what John is doing in these first few verses of his gospel. 
John writes somewhere around 90 A.D. Scholars are not quite sure, but he is probably the one who writes the last gospel. And he has seen many decades go along, and he writes under inspiration of God's Spirit this magnificent gospel. And it is framed around the miracles of Jesus. It is very different than Matthew's gospel. Matthew's is much more chronological, and John's has chronology to it. But it's all around certain miracles that represent the beautiful person who Jesus is and was. And what John is presenting to us is beautiful music, a beautiful representation of Jesus. And it informs us about our cultural engagement. How should we view our fallen world? How should we engage in this world? And we, we learn much from the word uh, from which we, uh, we get our identity, which is the word assembly in the New Testament, which has been strangely translated church into English. Uh, and there's a strange history behind that. I'll spare you that. But when you look at the word church in your New Testament, and there's over 100 references to the concept of church in the Bible and New Testament. The word is assembly, the ecclesia, from which we get words like ecclesiology, the study of of the church. And the word is a a couple of words put together. Ek is the Greek uh, preface for um, to call or to to, to call. um, It's out. It means out of. And kaleo is to call. And so we are the called out community of God's people. We're a distinct people. So the Greeks would refer to an ecclesia uh, as, a, as a particular Greek group, a group of, uh, say, representatives of a city. You and I have this calling that's upon us. We are the called out ones. This is our first and primary ad- identity. It defines us. It rests upon us. And God has called us out in order to be his people before a watching world, before a particular time and place. In John's gospel, we have Jesus, God the Son, entering into his cultural moments, literally being embodied in human flesh, coming into this world to live at a particular time and place And what we are doing is we are called to live like him, to follow him. We are called into a culture. Now, a culture is a very difficult English word to understand. In fact, there are people who have committed their whole lives to try to understand the concept of culture. So to try and explain it in just a few sentences doesn't doesn't do it justice. But culture is the dominant patterns and assumptions that shape the way we view reality, what should be pursued, the things that we do, what we commit to. Often it shows up in the symbolic representations of the good life, what you should, what you should pursue. For instance, um, maybe you see a truck here on the island with a surfboard on top, right? That could be a, it sort of functions as a symbol, the surfboard functions as a symbol of what what it means to enjoy enjoy the island. 
the shopping mall, uh, go to go down to a coffee shop and see 20 people all staring at devices. This is a cultural moment. Okay? What does a culture embrace? So this is the cult. We've been called to a particular culture, our time. And again, the question is, what model, what model will most accurately represent our calling into this culture, this cultural moment? What model should shape our interaction with the culture around us? What model should do it? And I'm going to suggest to you simply that we are to follow our pace-setting God. The model is a model of incarnation. Now, I can't give you a to-do list of what that looks like to incarnate the love of God, but we do see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, we find that this, this Word, this Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and He was full of, of grace and truth. We learn that God's intentions become embodied. We learned that the world was worth redeeming and all aspects of the world worth redeeming. Interesting, in John's Gospel, the first thing that Jesus does is he doesn't talk about a spiritual realm. He makes wine out of water. God is into creation. God likes created things like you. And we learn that matter matters to God, that things that are made are important to God, so important that his son took on our flesh. So the world, all aspects of the world are worthy to be redeemed. Think about that. He embodied his intentions. If the world was dysfunctional, inhumane, unjust, different than him, unholy, sinful. He embodied his desire to change that. And so this artsy jumble of words on the cover of your worship folder was never intended to be some sort of abstract uh, thought, but an embodied thought. A thoughtful intention. So what is our view of culture? What is our view of culture? Is it something to be avoided or engaged? And I think that we find here a couple of things. Um, and let me, let me just do um, a couple of things. I'm going I'm to shorten this uh, message today. Um, let me just move through these rather, rather quickly. God in community, he is seeking to restore I think we'll find that today in this passage, and that God is also incarnate, and he is affirming our humanity, and then God is in his church bringing life through his son. Uh, John's gospel starts with a statement to the Greeks. The word logos is the word translated in your English word there in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the Greek culture, the Greek people thought 
that there was some organizing principle of the universe. Something made the universe happen. Something organized the, the universe. It was an organizing principle, something. They didn't really know what it was, but they named it the Logos. And John comes along after reflecting a long time about his own cultural moment, inspired by God's spirit, and he says, to the Greek world, the organizing principle, the thing that makes everything happen is not a thing, it is a person. The Logos makes creation happen. And he was in the beginning with God making the created world. This, of course, is the divine Son of God. And magnificent purposes are underway. The beauty of this world, the the magnificence of this world, is because God designed it that way. God was moving upon the surface of the waters, and he creates Genesis 1 and 2. God is moving, creating. And here in John chapter 1, God is moving and creating again. But here he's coming with a new creation in order to redeem, a, a new revealed plan to redeem this fallen world. And Jesus is no mere religious instructor. He is the central player in this redemption. He was the one who was with the Father in the beginning. And nothing has come into existence that he didn't make. There was no other God making things. He put his ideas into shape. And his ideas became embodied. They became real. And in order to redeem creation, God became embodied in human flesh. And his intention is to redeem the whole of this universe. Sometimes you'll find this in the epistles, and you're not sure what on earth is being said here. Like Ephesians 4 says that, that God may fill the whole universe. Fill the whole universe. Fill the whole universe. What does that mean? We last a couple of weeks we looked in Colossians about this fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form and these big ideas of fullness and filling and well that's what God does He fills things and in redemption the intention is to fill things not just the private little world of salvation inside you but the whole of this creation that's why we have these lofty big concepts of like. Uh, John 1, 4, the light comes into the world and the darkness did not overcome it. The light comes into the world. Light, light. Meaning light, like light, Jesus moves into all aspects of this created order. You see, we're listening to Mozart here. No, I want to write it down. I want to make it. I want to, I want to. No, just listen to Mozart and get it and, and let it, let this music Fill your soul. And that's what John's intending. John writes to people who are disappointed and disturbed, affected by sin, victims of sin, people who who need hope. And what he does to them is he gives them this great grand vision of who made all things and who is redeeming all things. So it's a huge message of hope that God in community, meaning that God, the Trinity, was was thinking always of redeeming this world. And God sought to redeem this world and loves to restore its beauty. 
we find again more and more of the New Testament asking us or appealing to, to God on our behalf, I should say, that the eyes of our heart, a prayer from Ephesians 1, uh, the eyes of our heart would be able to grasp these things, to see these things. That we, we see the restoration that's happening through the Son of God. Yes, this relates to our personal salvation. But as we engage our culture, we must be thinking of all aspects of culture. Your work, art, music, architecture, education. Every aspect of this created world is to be redeemed. Nothing was beyond God's hand in the original creation. And nothing is beyond God's hand in the recreation that's happening through Jesus. And so God becomes flesh out of the community of the Trinity, out of the deep happiness of the Trinity. The Father seeks sinners. The Son becomes infleshed, embodied. And God seeks the joy of His creation again. So, the question then is, What model should capture our hearts? What vision of our cultural engagement should capture our hearts? Well, John 1.14, what a great model. This Jesus took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. The Word, look at verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is now reflecting on his own experience as an apostle, as a disciple following Jesus. And he's saying out loud for us to enjoy what we saw in him was grace and truth coming into the world. We saw God affirming our humanity. God set his tent, the the language really is that God tabernacled among us. God pitched his tent in human form among us. And what was it like to be around that God? He was full, full of grace and he was full of truth coming into this world. So, what model? It's a model of engagement. It's a model of thinking about how best to incarnate this love or pray that God would grant us a vision of incarnate, incarnated love toward our community, toward our culture. God affirms our humanity. It is a huge statement. In our day and age, we have lost our sense of our humanity, our distinctiveness. Many, many of the philosophies of our day that have captured the, the imagination of our culture have no distinction for man, that man is essentially an animal. Contrary, in Scripture, God does not see us that way. God affirms that we are distinct, image-bearing human beings with great dignity worth redeeming. So, embodied, God enters 
a cultural moment. Now, there's a lot of different models. I don't have time to cover them all, but there's a couple that should concern us. First, there's kind of an antagonistic model toward culture. Often this is expressed as fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is not unique to Christianity. There's Islamic fundamentalism. There's all kinds of fundamentalism. You could even have atheistic fundamentalism, really. Um, All kinds of discussion about that. But fundamentalism is rightly concerned, at least in the Christian form of it, is rightly concerned to be a distinctively moral people. That's good. But this model is largely antagonistic toward culture. The church is really a fortress. The cannons are pointed out, and, uh, and we fire away at things that we do not approve of. Well, let's match that up with what we just read in John chapter 1. How does that measure up? Does God fire away his cannons from heaven to a world that he is disappointed in? We are called to live hopefully before our neighbors and associates at work. We are to labor for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. And we are to think as a church and think and pray about what does it look like for us to incarnate the love of God. Yes, there will be things that may repulse us or we have a hard time personally relating to. But we should hammer away the law of God to our own heart, for none of us are righteous. Our morality, our keeping of God's law is like filthy rags in the language of Isaiah. Our engagement with the culture must be with the foundation of great humility. It's a time, though, for us to have a great calling toward culture. Os Guinness is the one who said that Christianity does well when there's a thousand gods on every hill. Don't worry about all the, 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 the gods and all the kinds of worship that may be going on and all the, the paganism or whatever it is that the culture may be doing. He says Christianity does just fine because now the distinctiveness of the gospel comes out more clearly. And another area that should concern us, a model, is essentially the pietistic or personal salvation as only the only concern that we should have as we live here in this moment. This is the, a dominant way of thinking that disregards everything except personal salvation. Personal salvation is abs- absolutely vital. Of course, personal salvation is vitally central to what we do. If you're not a Christian here today, I would cry out to you and appeal to you to turn and bow the knee of your life to Jesus Christ right now. But of course, we look at our Bibles, and our Bibles show us much more than just the Apostle Paul and his personal salvation. You cannot follow the Apostles recorded in the book of Acts and conclude that it is just a private little experience with Jesus. It's just not possible. And so what God's Spirit is actually doing in us individually and in us corporately is actually moving us with His Spirit. And His Spirit is a Spirit that moves. If the Son of God moved from heaven to earth and His Spirit is within us, we should expect His Spirit to be moving us as well. 
So deep theological convictions should capture the vision of our heart, our heart collectively as a church. And notice again, John just tells us in verse 4 that, that the, the person Jesus is represented by the metaphor of light. Look at verse 4. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In, in the Bible, the picture of light, the metaphor of light, is probably the biggest metaphor in the Bible for God, representing God. And, and light's kind of hard to get your hands around. I mean, how, how do you light? How do you do that? And I think that's exactly why John put, put it that way. When we were with Jesus, it was like being with light. You couldn't just, you couldn't just, well, that was a nice little religious teaching. I'm going to go about my life now. You encountered that light, and it started penetrating every aspect of your being, your life, your priorities, your goals. And the light shines into the darkness. And the one thing we might think is, well, it's fine that light's in my heart, and the darkness has to stay out there, and that's okay. We'll just hang on, read books about uh, the end of the world, and have Bible studies about the end of the world. And as long as we have this little light in us, we're okay. And John says, no, the light was not overcome by the darkness. He's expressing this extraordinary hope for the world. I remember standing in one of the most extraordinary buildings on this earth, Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, The house of holy wisdom. And there is this picture of Jesus, and it's just extraordinary. And, and the, the mosaic is, is, is so high off the ground, unless you had ladders, those who came in and, and changed it, the, the, the Muslims who came in later and turned it into a mosque, they, they really couldn't come and, and white uh, wall over that, which they did a lot of the mosaics. And they couldn't get to it, really. And so there it is. And it's extraordinary. And I remember the sadness coming over me, realizing this great church is now no longer a functioning church, right? And I remember looking at the the image of Jesus and realizing that the image of Jesus actually brought me right up into the reality that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, the ascended Lord of glory. Whether there's a building that's functioning as a church or not doesn't matter because he's caring for his church. And recognizing that this this exalted Lord is moving upon this earth. And in particular moments, it may not look like it. And in particular times that maybe whole churches are empty and turned into museums. Or back in the 80s, they turned them into discos in New York. How about that? What you see is not the final determiner of what's actually happening. And what John tells us in John 1, 4 is the light has come into the world 
and the darkness does not overcome it. What's the point of that? Now read the book of Acts. That same spirit that communicated to John, write this, is in you. He is in you, moving, that you would not be intimidated by the darkness. And it is real darkness, and it is darkness that might just kill you if you read the book of Acts. And it is into this darkness that Jesus sends us. We are overcomers. And we've been brought into the greatest secret of of life, that even though they take your life, the secret is they give it to you. So, way beyond personal, my own personal salvation is the concern for the whole world. That same concern that embodied Jesus Christ, that brought him into this world, that same concern is in us. And so the call is upon us. The God who affirms our humanity, communicates that we are worth redeeming, puts his spirit within us, is moving among us right now. And we need to dialogue and talk and think. What does it look like to engage all aspects of culture and begin to ask what it would look like for us to begin to serve where God has called us to be? God wants to make human beings human beings again. And we play a role in that. So let me just kind of wrap this up with a third, third idea is that God is in his church bringing life through his son. Many ideas have already been expressed about John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and darkness does not overcome this light. Again, God has placed us in a world where Every 24 hours, the sun rises. That is a huge picture of the gospel itself. That God has placed us in a world and he has brought us a knowledge of his son. He's given us life in his son. And it is like the light of each day. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Think about this. In engaging our culture, engaging people, engaging the institutions of our culture, the different aspects of of human life, what we're doing is we're bringing to people our lives, our salt, our light, and we're bringing the light that people were meant to live by. Of course, the great foundation for all cultural engagement is humility. And John highlights this. In John chapter 1, verse 10, he says this. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Uh Uh-oh, that's a tragedy. Look at 11. He came to his own. Be the Jewish people. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, why in a passage, when we're talking about God the Son becoming embodied in human flesh, would we have a discussion about how it is that we become children of God? Because God intends to embody the same goals and priorities that were in the Son in you, now that you are a daughter and son of God. The way we become engaged in the incarnational model is by being coming children of God. It's the culmination of salvation to be declared a child of God. And what God does is he overcomes the darkness and human resistance in our own heart. We were not born into this family by our own will, nor the will of anyone else. And so we become children of God, and we have no claim to that. Now, the strange thing about us born into our own human families, even though we had nothing to do with it, <laughs> we claim it. I am a capon. <laughs> and, and for some reason, we take credit for it. And John goes right after that. He says, oh, and by the way, if you're a follower of his, if you're a child of his, it happened not because of you. Well, what, what, what's going on here? He's saying that ultimately we're going to see cultural engagers, and they're going to go with this knowledge, I have no right to this privilege. So the humility is a foundation for cultural engagement. And what it means is that we serve. And I know that I'm talking to people who have perhaps arrived today tired. Perhaps you've arrived today, I just can't say yes to yet another thing. And I totally understand that. And I hope that the music of the gospel, as you've been in the sound booth today, will just be beautiful for you and fill you with the light of his glorious presence. But I will tell you that when the church is mobilized and when the church sees moments to serve, it makes a great difference. Last year, we had a picnic. It was our second one. It's something that the church puts on and it happens down here on the field. I want to tell you what happened that Friday about a year ago. And on the following Monday, a school parent came wandering in the office downstairs. And they said this, who put on the picnic? Who do I thank? That was incredible. And then one of the secretaries said, well, the church is really behind it. And they said, would you thank the church for my family? And they went on and on about what a difference that event made. It brought their family together. It gave them a sense of community. It, it was a, a gracious gesture. And they didn't know really who was behind it. I say this to say that the things we do as a church are not just activities to keep you busy. Conversations start. It actually can lead to someone discovering the beautiful music that you have heard 
the beautiful gospel music you've heard today. It can make a difference in our very culture, the way we engage in community events. So the life of the church is a concern for her culture and the cultural moment that she finds herself in. We do embrace the world itself. We are a distinctive people. But we embrace this world. It is the world that God sends us into with all its troubles, with all its sin and its fallenness. Ultimately, what the church is motivated by is the love of God. And I pray that as we explore what this incarnational model means more and more, what it looks like, God's love will become incarnated in you in a much more full and lovely way. Let's pray.